Well, this morning, I wanted to, in short, talk to you about the incarnation. The incarnation. And I was going to have the whiteboard here, Steve, but I completely forgot about it. Sorry. However, I wanted to ask the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? It's so easy for us in Christendom, especially in this modern day, to have what's called mission drift. It's where we get involved with so many other things and we go into so many other directions and we lose sight of what the real gospel is. The gospel is the saving work of Christ, which is rooted in four historical events with, with spiritual uh, implications connected to those four different events. Is the sound okay out there? It's not too... All right. So let me say this again. The gospel of Jesus Christ is in fact the work of God through Christ, which is rooted in four historical events, and each one of those events have a spiritual implication. And in order to understand the whole gospel, we have to understand all four of these events and what they truly mean to us spiritually. Most people <clears throat> will not see the gospel in its completeness. But in order for us to see the gospel in its completeness, the full gospel, we have to look at the whole entire work of Christ. These four historical events include, number one, the incarnation. What do we celebrate during the incarnation? The coming of God. To be with us here on earth. In other words, we celebrate Christmas with the incarnation, right? That is what we do when we celebrate Christmas. We're celebrating the incarnation. God becoming a man. Secondly, the fourth historical event is the atonement. The atonement is celebrated on Easter Friday. The atonement is celebrated when we celebrate Easter, Jesus dying on the cross, making atonement between God and man, at one between God and man through the cross. The third event is the resurrection. The resurrection we celebrate every year, resurrection Sunday morning, resurrection Sunday morning. And that happens to be the Biggest Sunday celebration globally, resurrection. It's an event that took place and it has a tremendous spiritual impact. Just like the atonement before it, when Jesus died on the cross at Easter Friday, is an event that has a tremendous spiritual impact. So we have the incarnation that we celebrate annually when we celebrate Christmas. God coming to earth. We celebrate the atonement, in other words, the cross, on Easter Friday. We celebrate the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. And then we celebrate the ascension on Ascension Day, which happens 40 days after Easter. Now, most people, when asked about the gospel, will explain the gospel like this. It is what happened at the cross. If you ask anybody, for most part, they will say, the gospel is Jesus died for you and me on the cross so we can live. However, the gospel or the good news includes not just the atonement, in other words, the day Jesus died on the cross, 
or the atonement and the resurrection, in other words, the day He came out of the grave. But the gospel also includes the ascension that took place right after that. There are tremendous, there's a tremendous impact in the understanding of what the ascension is all about. It is part of the work of Christ. But not just the ascension, also the incarnation. In other words, all four of those events and their spiritual significance is what we need to understand in order to understand the full gospel. For instance, the reason the ascension is part of the gospel is because it is part of Christ's work. That's part of what He did in God's plan of saving you. In the ascension, Jesus went to be with the Father, not to rest from His work. He went to be with the Father as your and my high priest. He is today seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you as a high priest. Today, He sits on the right hand of the Father as your advocate defending us from the accuser, showing the heavenly judge how we have been made right with God in Him. This is Jesus' work, God's plan of salvation for you. Isn't that exciting? So don't for a moment think that Jesus died on the cross and the work was done. No, He rose from the dead. But that doesn't mean His work was done either. He ascended on high, seated on the right hand of the Father to be your advocate, to be your high priest. We have one high priest, and it's Jesus, ever making intercession for you and I. What good news. <laughs> he, have, he has not forgotten about you. That is the good news. That is what He's doing for you and me, and that is why. He ascended. At least that's one of the very important reasons why He ascended. Now, in the very same way, you know, we, we understand, as Dave explained this morning, when, he received, when we received communion, there is the event called the crucifixion. And, that, and the event called the crucifixion is where He paid the penalty against your sin. Then we have He's, he's rising from the dead. This is where He conquers the last enemy. He conquers death. And that is a picture of what He is doing for you. He conquered death in your life. And then He ascended into heaven, which ought to give us a tremendous amount of peace because He is currently interceding for us and fending for us. But in the same way, it all starts off with an event, the first event, called the Incarnation. And, ha and the Incarnation has massive implications. It's a part of the good news. And we need to know this, and we need to celebrate it as such. And this is the season when we get to celebrate the Incarnation more than any other part of the year. We view the Incarnation as the Gospel because leaving heaven was part of Christ's work, part of God's plan of salvation in your life. Coming to earth in form of a man was part of what He did as an act of obedience to His Father. 
Coming to earth as a man was part of God's plan and Christ's work in saving you. It was what He did to save us eternally. And it is this doctrine of the Incarnation that sets Christianity apart from all other religions of the world. I mean, think about it. What makes Christianity different? Now, there's a list of a thousand things, but in, in regards to the Incarnation, Christianity is set apart from every single other false religion in the world. It sets it apart from paganism, secularism, every way. But the Incarnation does so because... It is, the, it is only in Christianity where we find God taking the initiative in becoming man in order to redeem sinful men. Let me say that again. The incarnation sets Christianity apart from every other false religion in the world. Why? Because in Christianity we find God taking the initiative. God takes the initiative in becoming one of us in order to save sinful us. And this is the point that needs to be celebrated during Christmas. It sets us apart from every other religion. Also, it is only in Christianity where God humbles Himself and becomes a baby. A baby dependent upon the very humans He came to save. Think about that. Almighty God becomes dependent upon Joseph, Mary. Which other religion has a God that humble? This is a point we need to celebrate during Christmas. Also, what sets Christianity or the incarnation that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world is that it is the only Religion where God meticulously designed every part of His plan to save His own. Every part. Before the foundations of the world, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit agreed on everything that has taken place and will be taking place. Think about this. Let me ask you this question. Does God learn anything new? No. He cannot learn anything new. Because he's omniscient. He already knows everything. Now, there wasn't a time when he knew everything. He has always known everything. This tells me, and this tells you, that when it says before the foundations of the earth, Christ was crucified, this means, because that's what the Bible says, this means before the foundations of the earth, before he made the world, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit agreed that there was going to be an incarnation, agreed that there was going to be an atonement, agreed that there was going to be a resurrection, agreed that there was going to be an ascension, and agreed that was all going to be done for you. Why? Because He chose you at the same time before the foundations of the earth. That's when He chose you, when His plan came together. And He made what theologians call um, the covenant, the covenant of grace. 
That covenant was not made with man. It was made with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You will find, interesting fact, that at the creation of the universe, at the creation of the earth, all three of the Godhead was involved. The Spirit was hovering, and God spoke a word that eventually became flesh. So God, the Spirit, and the Son was involved with the creation. But guess what? God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they were involved with a new creation, which is you. God elects you. Jesus redeems you. And the Holy Spirit seals you. Again, the whole Godhead planned it all. And here we know that because of the incarnation, which is part of God's fantastic plan of salvation, it sets Christianity completely apart from every other false religion in the world. As C.S. Lewis puts it, I quote, he says, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And even though many, of, many other celebrations have formed around Christianity during this time of the year, the reasons we celebrate Christmas sets Christianity clearly and distinctly apart from every other religion. These are the reasons we celebrate the Incarnation. We are celebrating Christmas. The term Incarnation is of Latin origin and literally means becoming in flesh, or coming in flesh. While the term is not scriptural, in the Greek we see that it's found, in the equivalent in Greek, it's found in John 1, 14a. It says, and the Word became flesh. This is in one statement explaining the incarnation. Remember that the Word was present at the creation. The Word is going to be present at our judgment. It is the Word of God we will be evaluated against. You go like, oh, I didn't know we we're going to have a judgment. Yes, we are. As a matter of fact, judgment starts in the house of the Lord, and we will be judged, and ministers will be judged in a more severe way than everybody else. And so, yes, there will be a judgment, but that judgment is not a judgment as to where you will spend eternity. It's a judgment as to how you will spend eternity. The first judgment is where God separates the sheep from the goats. The second judgment is where the sheep arrive and He evaluates our fruits. And some built with straw, hay, and wood. And everything they did in this world will burn up. Yet they themselves will be saved. Now, I like to say it this way. Your faith in Christ determines where you spend eternity. Your faithfulness to Christ de depends or determines the rewards you will experience during eternity. So your faith in Christ is what saves you. Your faithfulness to Christ is what determines your rewards.
Christmas is therefore the celebration of this great truth of the doctrine of incarnation. Now that little part there about that I just went through wasn't in my notes. So <laughs> uh, I knew. Uh, uh, now I have to jump back into where I was. Okay. Uh, the word became flesh. That very word that was present at the creation of everything. That will be present at the judgment of all things. Where we are judged or measured against the very word of God. That very word became flesh and dwelt among us. And his name is Jesus. In Jesus, God himself enters into human history and reveals himself. He reveals himself up close and personal. Here he is. The fascinating thing about the incarnation is that God is encountered in a very real way that we can relate to. He became a man. It became very personal. It, it, it's a historical fact. We can study him. It became, he has become very tangible in that way. But think about it. That God doesn't just reveal things about himself. He could have done that. He could have just revealed things about himself, but he didn't. He reveals himself to us in Christ. There is God. And this is the thing we need to make sure we understand about Jesus. Jesus is fully God. He is fully God. And took on flesh. So he was one, he is 100% God, nothing less. Because there was an early heresy called Arianism. For those of you who finished first year Bible school, Arius believed that because Jesus was birthed, he was a creation of the Creator. God is an uncreated creator. He sits above His own creation. Nobody created Him. He existed from eternity past to eternity future. If you can think about future eternity, well, turn around and think about past eternity, and that is where God lives. Nobody created Him. But He created everything we have. And Jesus birthed into this creation that God created. Arius went, oh, so He must be a little bit less than God. No, 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 said all the church fathers. And they excommunic excommunicated areas for that. Said, no, no. Jesus is the revealed God. God revealed to us. The Bible says Jesus is God's expressed image. He is 100% God. And... He became 100% man. Not 50-50, but 100%, 100%. To submit yourself to Christ is to submit yourself to God Almighty. Oh, and this is where Islam just absolutely departs from Christianity. Because Jesus was a prophet. But He was much more than a prophet. He was God. He wasn't less than a prophet. More. And so, so God doesn't just reveal things about Himself to us. In Jesus, He reveals Himself to us. He doesn't just tell us things about Himself. He shows Himself to us. So what does this doctrine of the incarnation 
teach us about God. Because if we understand that what God teaches us in scriptures isn't just for us to mentally ascend to, isn't just for us to have arguments over or discussions or debates, but what He teaches us in the Bible is to have an impact in our lives. So I always hope that what we learn here actually changes us on Monday. When you walk out of this building, what God has revealed about Himself to you causes you to walk out a different person than what you walked in, right? That's what doctrine's all about. Doctrine works within us and causes us to see God in a new, different way. And every time something about Him is revealed to you, you change. Did you know that? When God is revealed to you, you change. When we see Him, we will be as He is, the Bible says. We change completely the moment something about God becomes clear to us. That's what doctrine does. That's what the Bible's all about. So the question I have is, I said to the Lord, Lord, what is this doctrine of the incarnation doing in my life? What is the whole idea of God incarnate here with us, walking on the earth in Christ 2,000 years ago? What does that have? What has that, that impact? How has that impacted your life? I'll ask it in a very, very plain way. How does Christmas change you? How does Christmas change you? Now, I'm, let me just keep going. How does Christmas change you? Well, we have to ask that question. How can I see the incarnation and what it teaches me? Well, number one, it teaches us that God came to us and He came for us. God came to you and He came for you. He had your name. He had a plan. He had a strategy. And He didn't come for anybody. He came to save you. Have you realized that Jesus didn't come to change goats into sheep? doesn't say that. He said He came to find the lost sheep of Israel. He knew you before the foundation of the earth. He came to you, and He came for you, and He will not fail. That's good news. Isaiah 9, verse 6a says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. He came to you, and He came for you. And that is what we learn from the incarnation. Number two, the incarnation teaches us that God came for us. Why? Because He loves us. Not because we were great. Because He loved us. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, in this way He loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son. He gave Him in the capacity of leaving heaven and coming to earth to be with you, coming for you, coming to you because He loves you. May the incarnation and this celebration of the incarnation work within our hearts 
convincing us daily that He loves us. Number three, the incarnation teaches us that God came to be with us. He came to be with you. Matthew 1, 23 says, Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. I always wonder, how, how do Muslims deal with that? How, how do they interpret this verse in the book of Isaiah, their book? <laughs> He shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Ought the incarnation, is it not teaching us to want to be with Him? When we see everything He did to be with us. Number four. The incarnation teaches us that He is God revealed in the flesh, fully God, fully man. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God in the flesh. When we realize that, ought we not to reverence Jesus in our lives? There's this one thing that Tina is far ahead, was always far ahead than I've been, and she's usually far ahead in things than I am. And uh, she's, I'm always like, Tina, put, put what you're saying on ice because my bandwidth is so is so full right now. I'm doing things, okay? I can't think through this doctrine with you. <laughs> I can't. I remember. <laughs> anyway, just many times, many times that has happened. I keep on telling her, just slow down. Slow down. I'm not, I'm, I'm coming. <laughs> I'm consistent in getting there. But I don't like to I don't like to throw something out there I haven't thought through yet, right? And that's the deal. So the incarnation teaches us that God is revealed in the flesh, fully God and fully man. We also see number five that the incarnation teaches us that Jesus is humble. Jesus is humble. Let me go back to the fourth one. He is God revealed in the flesh, fully God and fully man. What I wanted to say about that was, um, you know, Tina has never liked the whole Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts, right? And she's never liked that. And I always used to think, ah, oh, it's because of the way she grew up. She grew up Catholic and she's like Orthodox and she's like, a, like I, I don't like that. But she used to have a reverence for the house of the Lord, for the house of the Lord, the people of God, for the Word of God. And uh, for instance, you know, I used to, used to joke around during prayer time. And especially when we had kids, you know, 
And Tina was always like, this is serious. I'm like, I'm in my pajamas. <laughs> we're around the table with the kids. She goes, yes, but we're talking to the Lord. <laughs> I'm like, all right, got to find a holy moment so the wife can simmer down. But more so have I become more reverent and reverent towards even when we talk about the Lord. Have you guys ever made a joke about anything about the Lord or about the things of God and then suddenly your heart just strikes you? You go like, that joke, I shouldn't have, sorry, Lord, I shouldn't have told that joke or laughed at that joke. or You know what I'm saying? Uh, maybe I'm the only one. But there needs to be a reverence towards Jesus. Why? That's what the incarnation teaches me. He is fully God. That's why I can't do the Jesus is my homeboy guy. Because he is fully God. The incarnation teaches us, number five, that Jesus is humble. Trading heaven for a dirty stable and a bloody cross. Philippians 2 verse 5 and 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves. So he's saying, let this have an impact in the way you think. Let this have an impact in how you, in your perspective of things. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, even though he was equal to God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself. He humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man, and being found in human form, the incarnation. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Have that mind in you. And this is one of the things that's very true about us in the, in the West. And when I moved here 22 years, 23 years ago almost, the fact that I have rights is a very American issue. And that thing there, I know my rights, has filtered into the church. And now I, as a born-again believer, I have rights. Well, the re really, the, tru the truth of the matter is, if you follow Jesus and you have that mind in you that was in Christ, you wouldn't think about all of what, all of your own rights and all the things that you can get away with and that you can do, that you are free to do. No, no, no. You are the one that will submit yourself to the will of the Father inside of that moment. I am more interested... The more I grow in the Lord, the more interested I become in what my responsibilities are and, less, and the less I become interested in my rights. I'm free. Jesus has set me free. I can do as I please. No, no, no. First and foremost, that's, that's a misinterpretation of that. But you find people running around just demanding their rights. I have rights to prosperity. I have rights to healing. I have rights to happiness. That's all. Wait a minute. Do you think any of those things were true for Paul? <laughs> did he ever run after those things? Did he, oh, did, did he ever declare those things and demand those things? No. No, no, no. 
You know what he did? He gave himself to his responsibilities. And when we see in the incarnation, Jesus humbled himself and he traded what he had the rights to, which is heaven. He traded it for a dirty stable and for a bloody cross. Why? Because that's what his father asked him to do. Number six, the incarnation teaches us that God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. Approximately 700 years before Jesus was born, God promised through the prophet Isaiah that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. We see that in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Therefore, it says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And this is the sign that the Messiah has arrived. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. God with you. We also see God making promises and fulfilling His promises. We see that in, that in about 670 years before Jesus was born, God promised through the prophet Hosea that the Messiah would end up in Egypt. We see that in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Approximately 600 years before Jesus was born, God promised through the prophet Micah where the Messiah would be born. He says in Micah 5 verse 2, the prophet says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There are so many very specific prophecies about Jesus and how He fulfills them because God is a promise keeper. Now, there's so many ways to show how Christianity is absolutely separate and distinct and set apart from all other false religions, prophecy being one of them, that Jesus comes and He fulfills all of these prophecies made of Him 600, 700 years, 4,000 years before He even showed up. Isn't, didn't God say to the snake that your seed will be at enmity with her seed? And even though you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. What was he speaking of? The cross. It's an amazing thing. Which other religion can claim such accuracy? God is a promise keeper. And what he has promised you Trust me, folks, He will fulfill. And here's a promise I love. What He started, He will finish. Oh, Lord, uh, the Lord puts me at rest. In, when I think about you, when I pray about you, guess what I see? God's finished product. <laughs> and, and guess what else? I'm not the one having to do it. Because what He started in you, He is going to finish in you we only get to sit on the sidelines and see this miracle take place. And some of you, brother, some of you brothers, you're miracles. <laughs> I, wasn't, I was going to call out Sid, but I'd look at you rather. <laughs> some of you, big miracles. Some of you, about to have a miracle. <laughs> Don't worry, Kristen, I'm praying for him. He's about to have one. <laughs> 
There are so many specific prophecies Jesus came to fulfill because God keeps His promises. Uh, if He kept His promises then, trust me, He'll keep His promises now and He'll keep His promises forever. The incarnation teaches us that we can trust God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds. Trust Him. He's sovereign. Trust Him. He's sovereign. Jenny Jester loved this one quote she saw that I quoted once from Charles Spurgeon. He says something in the lines of, to the believer, the believer lays his head down every night on the pillow of God's sovereignty. That's where you find rest. That's how you sleep. You lay your, lay, your head down on the pillow of God's sovereignty. And so uh, I got one for Christmas last year, I think, or for my birthday, I can't remember. But a pillow in the mail um, from Jenny, and she engraved on it the sovereignty of God. So I sleep every night on that pillow. That's why you don't have to be burnt out. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in uncertainty. You're confident of what? God is sovereign. And everything, everything He has decided will happen. You say, oh, that's not true. Well, how in the world did all these prophecies come to pass? He decided them. That's why they happened. Right? The moment He says something, it becomes true. And it starts happening. In conclusion, our takeaway with this is this time of Christmas and this time of celebration is in fact us celebrating this powerful doctrine of the incarnation. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other false religion, sets it apart from humanism, secularism, and their notion of the divine. But celebrate Christmas. This is the challenge. This is what God has called us to. Because in doing so, you are celebrating the distinctions between Christianity and the rest of the world and their false religion. So I pray that this year's celebration is more meaningful and more impactful than any Christmas has ever been for you. May this celebration teach us and teach you that God came for you. He came to you. Why? Because He loved you. And this is why you ought to love Him back more now than ever before. May this celebration teach you that God came to be with you. That is why more than, ever, more than ever before, you should have a desire to also be with Him, spend time with Him in prayer and in the Word and with His people. May this celebration teach you that He was able to do what He did because He was humble. He humbled Himself, He left heaven and came to earth. He humbled himself. He lived as a servant. He humbled himself. He gave himself to death, death upon a cross. He humbled himself. That's why God exalted him. Every work of Christ was preceded by his humility and rooted in the fact that he was humble. That is why he's able to come, because he was humble. And that is why you and I ought to have the same mind in us that was in him. And we ought to live humbly before Him. May the celebration this year teach you that He is a promise keeper. And that is why 
you can trust him. Trust him. Amen. Did you get something out of the word?